Welcome to the CSBS podcast, a podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. The community college is an essential pillar in our education system and to much of our current reality. The community college is also one of the strongest yet underrepresented underdogs inside higher ed. Community college make up the fabric of our knowledge and global economy, both as economic engines and as a highway to career success for many students and especially those who come from traditionally marginalized backgrounds. In this episode, CSBS team members Brent Roberts and I will speak with Professor Ebony Zamini Gallagher about why community colleges are more important than ever before. As a professor in the Department of Education Policy, Organization, and Leadership, and director of the oldest community college research hub in America, the Office of the Community College Research and Leadership, Dr. Zamala Gallagher will lead us through a critical conversation on how community colleges are a promising springboard for all, but also how they are a reflection of the unspoken racial and ethical challenges existing in higher ed. To address these challenges, Dr. Zamala Molly Gallagher will enlighten us on what changes are needed for higher ed to continue to contribute to anti-racism work and encourage equitable student outcomes. So um, to, the, to the extent you would like to indulge us, um, can you tell us your story? So how did you end up in the middle of a cornfield in 2020 um, working on um, issues of uh, community college and education and um, underserved communities and how they uh, net negotiate and navigate those types of paths? Um, so what's your story? Well, let's see. The story is I am a native of, of Illinois, grew up on the south side of Chicago and uh, did all of my post-secondary here in the state. Uh, went to Western Illinois for undergraduate and did my master's there in experimental psych. Um, did some work in between, ended up at Illinois uh, in the doctoral program. So I came here, actually landed, first landed in this, this corn field <laughs> in 1995. And when I left here, I uh, then was a faculty member at West Virginia University and then at Eastern Michigan University for 13 years uh, and got recruited back six years ago. So the story is I, the major professor that I studied with uh, while I was in my doctoral work here in the mid 90s was the founder of or is the founder of the Office for Community College Research and Leadership. And as she was looking to transition and go on to her next act, they were interested in, in seeing who could then be her successor. And so I came on, came on back. Welcome back then. That's great. Um, I didn't know you had, you had um, ties, but um, it's a good thing. So you were brought back here specifically to be the director of the OCC RL. Is that true? Right. So Deborah Bragg, who um, founded our office in 1989 with a, a small grant from ISBE, the uh, Illinois State Board of Education, actually the, the work of the center uh, was initially with middle grades and secondary um, looking at tech prep education okay. um, and funny. vocational ed and, and, and then yeah. kind of morphed and, and grew into some other areas over the years. Uh, but yes, that was that was the goal. So the first year that um, 
fall 2014. Uh, I was an affiliate of OCCRL, um, faculty member in at policy organization and leadership. And, and then the following year, I became the director in April of 2015. Um, so that first year was just me kind of getting acclimated and um, Deb winding down with her, her grants. Our shop is completely soft money only. We are not a budget line item for the college or campus. So the fact that she thrived in um, not just keeping the lights on, but building what is a nationally recognized um, office for community. We're the oldest research hub on just on community colleges in the country. So that's a point of pride. And so for me, it was exciting um, because I had, you know, been under her tutelage um, to come back and add to what is the, the next volume, if you will, OCCRL and, and build on that that foundation that she laid. That's great. Um, can um, you give us a snapshot of what the OCCRL does? Sure. So, um, you know, for the first 20, 25 years during Deb's tenure, um, I would say we had what was the three buckets. And um, the primary focus had been around um, addressing and examining um, student transfer. So, you know, all types of transfer, right? So vertical transfer in terms of students moving from two to four year. Um, reverse transfer with respect to students that may have started out like you know, a place like this, but then find themselves going to a community college instead. Um, and then what we call credit when it's due, which is another form of reverse transfer, but it's not the transfer of the of the person, just the credit, right? And so an individual stops short of um, earning a community college credential and associates because their intent was to, to utilize the transfer function, it was not about to confer a, a two-year degree. But there's ways in which as students pursue their baccalaureate, then those credits are transferred back to uh, the previous community college um, so that as they're earning the baccalaureate, they can also still complete an associate's degree. And this is really important in the sense that think about right now, right? The bottom's falling out life happens. Um, so there's students making hard decisions about can they continue with schooling. We have so many adults that have some college and no degree. Um, when you have this option of being able to still matriculate and earn an associate's while you're at your baccalaureate institution, should the bottom fall out and life happens, you still have um, a credential that has labor market value um, whereby you can still you know, work. And then I have an on-ramp potentially, right, again, um, to get back to um, that two plus two in terms of the traditional kind of transfer of getting that, that baccalaureate degree. So that was some of the key work along with looking at um, career clusters and programs of study um, and doing some work related to um, you know, uh, some coaching. So there's what we call um, pathways to results. Um, and that is um, an assessment approach where we give coaching, work with colleges around being equity minded, how to identify equity gaps, um, how to disaggregate the data um, in identifying e uh, equity gaps. So that was, a, 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 you know, plus lots of other things, as you can imagine, over the course of her 25 years. Um, 
And then um, we have since um, pivoted a bit. Um, as I came on board um, and I have been away 15 years and have my own kind of uh, scholarly identity and, and expertise that um, while overlapping is very much distinct from um, Dr. Bragg's, um, we have what we call our four pillars. And so OCCRL um, is really about um, how do we advance equity-driven change? How do we um, encourage transformative leadership as well as comprehensive pathways, right? So um, it was very much wanting to be more explicit and intentional about the fact that while we are a community college um, research hub, that we think about the entire trajectory of how students, diverse students are moving in through and out of post-secondary with community colleges um, being a, a key part of that since nearly half of all undergraduates that attend college are not at places like Illinois or EIU, they're, they're at community colleges. Um, and so, you know, uh, we would be remiss if we weren't thinking about the the very unique role and importance of the community college in terms of student mobility, um, economically, educationally, socially. Um, and then the, another area, our fourth um, strand, is I wanted to be much more um, intentional about public engagement. Um, I know our, our campus is a land-grant institution. Um, community colleges, often again, I may have alluded to this about, um, you know, the, the resources um, not being as plentiful as their four-year sister counterparts, um, but that there are ways in which, um, because of us being at a land grant, that it behooves us to have outreach, to work closely with our colleges and helping them to advance their academic mission and to meet um, the needs of their local um, communities. And so um, we do that in a number of ways, um, you know, relative to technical assistance to colleges, professional development, through third party um, evaluations in terms of external evaluations. Um, we do original research um, and we, um, you know, again, through public engagement, I see just like what you're doing here with this podcast, that that is um, one aspect, just one case in point of, um, you know, how we utilize um, public intellectualism to, to have broader reach, outreach and engagement um, and to provide um, information, you know, to the community. So um, kind of jumping off from that, um, a lot of your work kind of focuses on uh, the community college as being this all important um, piece for a lot of people who are, you know, traditionally marginalized students in terms of providing them opportunity and equity and upwards mobility. And I want to kind of come back to your your origin story a little bit and ask, you know, was there a moment that you had where you kind of realized like that this is, oh, community colleges are so important because of this and maybe that it, it had been overlooked for you previously. Uh, I think a lot of uh, researchers they're kind of coming up, they have that aha moment and then it kind of shapes uh, what they pursue and, and how they organize their research going forward. <laughs> That's an awesome question, Peter. Um, the aha moment, it was, it was really serendipitous. Honestly, when I came to Illinois fall of 1995, I had no intention, let alone any awareness of uh, this as a, a area of, of emphasis focused study. Um, 
And my then advisor, um, who previously been uh, Associate Chancellor Stan um, uh, Levy, he said, what did you register for? And I said, I registered for this, that, and this, and that. And he says, mm, well, drop this, drop that. You can keep those two. And then I'm going to, you know, because I did all of this in advance of the initial advising meeting. I was just anxious, like I want to get in my classes. And he's like, you didn't even talk to me first. Oh, who told you to take that? Drop it. Um, so, uh, so then one of the suggestions was, you know, you need to take this, this community college class. It's called the community college. And wait for it. I said, the community college. I said, but I'm here to study higher education, right? And he's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, look, you want to be a higher ed scholar. He said, for you to really understand the full landscape of higher education, contrary to popular opinion, community colleges are a part of it. And this class is only offered like every other year. I think it would be good for you to take the class. And I'm, and I'm going, God, I didn't come here to study this. I don't want to take this, but it's my first semester. He's my advisor. I should take his advice. Okay. So get in the class. And Deb Bragg is teaching the class. And I had the good fortune at the time. And it was the only time they, they did this. Um, and he just retired in May. Um, distinguished professor at Illinois State University, James Palmer, he's walking almanac. We, we call him the encyclopedia of community colleges, like kind of one of the, uh, the sons of the godfather of community colleges, Art Cohen, who was, um, you know, in terms of our field, um, the one who uh, has had an imprint on everything and everybody. But Jim and Deb thought because of the proximity of the campuses, wouldn't it be fun if they co-taught a class and then cross-listed it and had students from the dot cohort at Illinois State plus Illinois folks, you know, have this experience together and with both of them. So my introduction to community colleges um, was with two of our best in terms of, you know, senior scholars, heavyweights in the field. Um, and when you talk about an aha moment, there was a spark. There was a spark. And the spark was, again, I'm in this class and my posture was such that I'm not here because I want to be, but I'm here because I was told this is what I ought to do. Uh, and once we got into the readings, I started seeing reflections of self. And I thought, okay, Ebony, you're tripping. This is you. This is you. So, and then it made me question um, some of my own, you know, kind of preconceived notions, um, you know, where I thought, okay, I'm from a working class family. I'm first gen, low income, um, you know, and, and I started to get jazzed about the community college. And I thought, oh, this is so like gangster, so maverick. This is, this is, this is what's up, right? And literally I got turned out where I came back from that semester break. Like, so think about it. It's this time of year, but it's 1995. Uh, wrap up, come back in January, meet with my advisor, and basically divorce them. You know, I was like, hey, that was a really great, you know, suggestion. And um, I'm going to shift gears, actually. Like, I'm <laughs> no. going to petition. And, and I totally, I completely um, switched tracks and didn't look back. And so my whole career trajectory changed um, because of that one class where in that class, I felt like I saw myself because I felt like, because one of the things that I, I've always had this real tension with, and 
just an inability to, to, to look the other way is marginalization, right? So like in the word, I felt like here are institutions that have been marginalized in the larger discourse of the higher ed, you know, the extant literature um, by the general public, they're, you know, kind of disregarded um, and marginalized. And they have the least and attempt to do and be the most for those that are most marginalized in society. You know, so if it's, you know, students with disabilities, when we think about collegians um, with, with disabilities, um, you know, three-fourths are, are not at places like this. They're at community colleges. When we think about students of color, racialized minorities, when we think about uh, displaced workers, um, you know, so many veterans, um, so many return to learn, um, single, you know, parenting students. Um, and I thought about my own mom and I started re, you know, visiting my early experiences actually with community colleges was as a kid, you know, running up behind her when she was doing, you know, classes for, you know, on the non-credit side. And then I started thinking too about, could my mom have had a, a credential because she's at some college, technically no degree, could she have had a credential if we thought more out of the box and thought about how to articulate and create pathways from non-credit programs to credit programs, right? So take, for instance, you know, you got someone who likes to tinker with cars, they think college isn't for them, and there's a technician program, it's a short-term certificate, they take an OSHA safety class, they take some other things, and they get this cert because it's about, I need a family-sustaining wage, I need to get into the the, the workplace, but I need an industry recognized credential um, and something that's a little bit more immediate. So I, I do this certificate saying HVAC, you know, you know, or some type of hybrid electric vehicles. Um, and so I'm working and I'm making a pretty decent wage. But if to the extent that we're really deliberate and thinking about how to accommodate student squirrel in terms of on and off ramps and mobility of students, um, we can be much more creative about curbing this, this big kind of neglected majority of some college and no degree and have more completers, right? So you can take that certificate, have it be a stackable or what we talk about in terms of incremental credentialing, um, where it then articulates to an applied associates of science. Right. And if you get that applied associates of science in, say, automotive technology maintenance. Um, but then there's a, a program that then articulates to our College of Engineering for that person to be in mechanical engineering or mechatronics or. Right. So those are the things that kind of get me jazzed is thinking about how do we increase possibilities? How do we create um, areas where for students who didn't see themselves as. Um, college being for them, whether it's because of financial barriers or because they're familial um, responsibilities where, you know, they have to have proximity to home or work, whatever it is. Um, I was intrigued by how do you support these types of institutions? Because I felt there were ways in which they were very transformative and innovative and game changers in terms of particularly from one generation to the next um, you know, transmitting um, ways in which people could be um, more mobile. Um, and so, you know, 
I think while it's not seamless opportunities, um, just the idea that I wanted to make a difference, um, particularly around um, folk of color. And that's what was, you know, poised to me, you know, positioned where the, the pitch was, well, Ebony, what are you interested in when I had the class? Because I was like, you know, again, like, why am I here? What are you interested in? And I said, well, you know, post-secondary uh, access and broadening participation for black and brown folk. And, and you know, I was told, oh, well, you know, there's a critical mass of black and brown folk in community colleges. Yeah, you, you have lots of, um, you know, space to, to learn and to contribute. Um, we can use a knowledge contribution. Um, and I'm still saying that, and, and I'm here, but 25 plus, you know, years, it seems, where um, there's so many places to get in, fit in, nothing but space from an opportunity in terms of um, work that's needed. Um, that can advance um, the sector. And I, and I also feel what's really interesting is that perhaps more sparks are being made. Um, we got a first lady coming in January who has um, for three decades been a community college educator and is, is no well-kept secret that um, they are priority, you know? Um, and, and, I, and we also got to see with the Obama the two terms of Obama and administration uh, imprint, if you will, of, of Jill Biden in there in the year of, uh, of she and, and VP Biden at the time, um, where as community college researchers, practitioners, we were so excited because, again, we're so accustomed to being on the margins and to have conversations where this institutional context was centered as mattering was everything. Mm -hmm. um, and can I ask a, a question, Pete? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because I just want so um, it's a beautiful um, story, by the way. Um, and but part of it uh, is the story of community colleges, and uh, you alluded to the fact that it's an underappreciated institution. And and I just you know, if you had five minutes to tell people why we should care um, about community colleges, um, what would you tell them? Um, because as you know, we, we, you know, we're sitting at the University of Illinois and we have a status system which tends to um, exalt the um, top R1 universities and ignore, as you already put it, the, the, the institutions that educate more of the populace than anybody, any other institution. Um, but there are more reasons for it being important. I just wanted to give you the chance to, mm -hmm. to say succinctly why we should care about them. Well, you know, there's so many reasons why we should care about community colleges. I think, you know, one of the points of pride for me too, um, being a native Chicagoan and, and from the state of Illinois, is that the community college as a concept, as an enterprise was birthed here. The very first community college is Joliet Junior College in 1901, right? So our state is, you know, kind of ground zero for what has become, you know, nearly, you know, uh, over 1,100 um, institutions, um, many of which have branches, many of which um, are also conferring baccalaureate degrees, um, not just associate's degrees, but community colleges matter in the sense that, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it, um, Brent, and, and act as if when they um, were, when they originated, that it was this really altruistic kind of 
uh, thing of we we really want to have um, the, this mastification of higher education and and it should be education that's not just about the elites. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, much of how community colleges evolved was with respect to creating or stratifying, if you will, um, you know, opportunities. Uh, and so you had college presidents of even Illinois president. We had, um, you know, William Gleaser and William Rainey Harper or Edmund Gleaser and William Rainey Harper and um, the president of the University of Chicago. You had these folks that actually lobbied for community colleges, but only because they wanted to have a Germanic model of higher ed that was more research focused where they would extract out the first two years of, of undergraduate and only have upper, the upperclassmen, right? The junior, senior years and think about how that then uh, is the transition to um, post-bac, right? For, for graduate work. Um, and, you know, many other community colleges and Joliet Junior College started out as extensions of high schools. So it was a high school initially. And I think that's part of why public perception has had lag um, in terms of catching up with and, and actually dissing community colleges sometimes as, you know, that's plan, you know, Z or that's where you go if you, you know, can't qualify. And that's not the case. There's lots of rigor and rich curriculum and opportunities. Um, and so I think part of what's happened, too, in terms of why we need to care is if you unpack the demographics um, and you look at societal demographics, right? Um, at no other point in time have our uh, campuses, and again, as microcosms of society, been as culturally pluralistic as they are now. And many students um, that enter college, um, they wouldn't even have a post-secondary entry point if it weren't for the door seals of community colleges. With tuition outpacing inflation, um, community colleges are the only affordable um, option, which is actually, um, you know, becoming out of reach for many families. Um, when we think about the, the funding formulas for community college, largely being dependent on local um, tax dollars, the local tax base and tuition itself. So with the disinvestment of states and the feds, um, we all need to care about um, how important this is because it provides a ladder um, and a mobility. And because we also have many um, of the skill trades, we have a skills gap, um, you know, high wage, high um, demand, high tech, um, well-paying, right, um, positions that are going unfilled. Uh, because we don't have folks um, with that, that technical expertise. And so um, there's lots of ways in which community colleges are more nimble um, than some of our four-year uh, institutions and in meeting community needs and meeting the individual learners' needs and meeting industry workforce uh, needs. And so they're very important as a, in terms of the economic engine, the social engine and fabric of the country. Um, and as well as when we think about um, it being a knowledge economy and a global economy, uh, we should care about the community colleges because the, it is a um, quite unique um, American invention and one that has um, been copied by other countries, you know, where they're looking at our model and building out tertiary education um, based on community colleges. Um, 
you know, one of the things that um, I'm, you know, so proud of is with many of the staff at OCCRL, um, you know, they're not new to this, they're true to this. You know, we have folks that what, who we study is, is who we are. Um, they were community college students. Um, they were the first in their families to go to college, um, to get an associate's, to transfer, to get the bachelor's, to get a master's, to get a doctorate. But we don't hear that narrative often. We hear that often if people started a community college, somehow that's a detour as opposed to something that could be a springboard. Mm. Um, that's a great um Great answer. So, but I just wanted to clarify at one point, did you call it a Germanic system that people wanted back when things were started? Yeah, because, so with German. Okay. <laughs> because because um, the, my little anecdote to add is I do a lot of work with educational researchers in Germany now. And, and, and I think the irony is that they took our idea and they did a German number on it and they they invested in it and they, they have, as you, you, know, you described, the institution as nimble and responsive, which is exactly the way they've structured it and probably better than we do because – and it, it's been given by some of the Germans as an answer for why they sur have survived some of the economic downturns better than we have because they had a better way of training their workforce because it wasn't solely focused on higher education being a four-year degree at an elite university. It was like, well, you've got these different options and they really invest in what we would think of as um, mm -hmm. the community college institution and, and ironically did so because they were inspired by us, at least the older version. Of that us. is ironic because, you know, <laughs> so much of um, within, the, you know, American higher education, kind of the history of it was kind of, you know, presented as such of this is what we should aspire to, right, is this dramatic model. Yeah. Um, and instead, you know, uh, we had lots of examples where what it created was segmented opportunities right. um, and stratification. Um, and, and sometimes unwittingly so if we, again, kind of unpack that data more granularly in terms of uh, who's and it's not just that students enter, right, it's where they enter. And, um, and so that there's this pedigree uh, piece. Um, with respect to um, a lot of this. I, I also kind of want to pose a question to you um, because it, you obviously would probably come at this from a unique perspective, but everyone in the conversation here went to a four-year college and then went to graduate school. And outside of our academic bubble, there will be people who will say, for example, you don't need to go to college. Um, what's the, what's the, the counter argument to why it is that, well, actually maybe a four year, you know, degree is still of importance and a community college is, um, a good way to get there as a stepping stone. Okay. So I think some of it in terms of, we still have a lot of work to do relative to, a, um, uh, what is a value proposition for higher education in general right, um, kind of irrespective of, you know, the levels or, or the tiers. And, you know, so there's, a, um, you know, it's concerning because with, you know, some of the Gallup polls of, in recent years um, that higher education is perceived to have less value. Um, as you mentioned, people are questioning, like, what's the necessity of a college degree? Um, you know, do you even really need it? Um, you know, so much for learning for learning's sake, you know, that kind of a thing. 
And so um, I think that part of the tension, though, is depending on what are the benefits, right? And, and how do we get the word out, if you will, from a buy-in perspective um, as to why it's important. We do know that there is a direct correlation um, and one that is, um, you know, the extent to more years of, of, of education um, on average, right? There's um, greater job security, uh, less likelihood of um, being uh, underemployed or, or unemployed, um, and more stability in terms of earnings and or higher earnings as well that correspond with, with having a post-secondary um, degree. And even some college without a degree, uh, on average, folks will do better um, in terms of earnings um, but of course, they, they do much better if they have a degree in hand. So there's a value proposition in terms of uh, having an associate's degree um, because you're going to do much better and you got to think about the life course, right? So over the cumulative effects and or disadvantages even of not making the investment in self, um, you know, with a degree, because I think also some people feel as if it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. They're not clear on or feel like maybe there's this, you know, kind of great American myth around why we should be seeking college. But I think when armed with the data, because um, I'm a facts type of gal, like I know right now there's like a lot of multiple and alternate universe <laughs> that folks are are living, uh, uh, you know, uh, realities that folks have. But I think when you really kind of unpack the data, you can see that um, this is not mythical. Um, on average, um, you know, you're going to see more earnings. You're going to um, have more stability. Um, we do see when we unpack that, that that's differential, though, for certain communities. So that, for example, even if someone for black workers that have the same, you know, all things controlled for, but have the same degree um, as a white counterpart, that there's much higher, uh, disproportionately higher rate of uh, unemployment and or underemployment as well as um, less in terms of, of earnings, even with the same degree. And also sometimes where folks with less education will still outpace and make more, right? Um, and so for some communities, it is a really hard sell, you know, to say, so even if I have a bachelor's, um, somebody with high school can still make what I'm making without, you know, or if I have a PhD, um, that somebody with an associate is, is still killing it and making the kind of money I'm going to make. You know, and I think you still have the nuances of, uh, you know, well, what field and what industry, right? Um, uh, what are you getting degrees in? Because that's the other thing I'm concerned about, too, is, is it's not just when we're saying just that they enter, but where they enter. But what do they exit with? Do you have a family-sustaining, um, you know, wage? And, and earnings. Um, and so um, in lieu of people not going to college, 
you got to think about what are some other options. I mean, there's trade schools, right, and technical schools, um, uh, vocational um, schools, but they don't readily have post-secondary credentials, right? You can kind of get a bunch of certificates, but I think that's also where right now there's this move and, and there's conversations and we need more of them to really revisit, um, again, how do we accommodate uh, student swirl and mobility? Students are not um, readily just attending one institution. That, that whole bit about um, first time in any institution, full time, no lag time to starting from when you come out of high school and then staying with that institution to completion, that's outmoded. Hmm. Um, there's multiple institutional attendance. Um, you know, there was a, some work we did around STEM transfer students was mind boggling to me that I didn't um, know, had no sense that we would find that there were 16 different attendance patterns for students. Um, and, and what does that, that mean, uh, attendance patterns? Well, so what happened was we looked at, um, so we had students that had gone to um, say they started at a trade school and then they went from one trade school to another trade school. And then they left that DeVry or that Everest, and then they went to a community college. Mm. Um, and then they left that community college and went to another community college, or they started a community college and then they went to a four-year college and they went and they reverse transferred back to a two-year college, or they started a four-year college and transferred to another four-year college and then went to a third four-year college where they went to a two-year college. But all of, wow, none of them have a degree in hand yet and have in excess of 200 credit hours in some cases, um, but no credential. Um, and so there were, I mean, there were outliers where there were transfer students that had attended seven other institutions outside of the one they were currently enrolled in at the time of the survey, right? And so you, it's almost like Hansel and Gretel dropping bread, you know, crumbs. Um, you have all this credit loss, time toward, um, completion and degrees and credentials lost, money lost. How do we figure out, one, learning is ubiquitous. Two, how do we um, think about all learning counts to, to some extent and how does it count? How do we award credit for prior learning? Because in some cases people have, um, you know, experiential learning that should count for something, right? Um, and so I think there's all of these other ways in terms of thinking about alternatives and thinking about college and being in a completion agenda where we can call outside the lines and we can, um, you know, try to be much more innovative to get more folks there. There's, um, you know, what is called the um, 60 by 25. So during the Obama administration and actually from the steps of a community college, the summer of uh, 2009, it was, yeah, Macomb Community College in Michigan. Um, he said he wanted to launch the American Graduation Initiative. So with this AGI, um, the charge from the president was that we needed at least 60% of all adults in the U.S. to have some post-secondary credential, right? So it could be a long-term certificate, it could be an associate, it could be, you know, back, whatever, but that Everybody, you know, in terms of six out of 10 uh, adults need to have some type of post-secondary credential because this is a knowledge economy. It's a global economy for us to, um, 
remain competitive, um, you know, and because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, two thirds or more of our labor market was unskilled laborers. Right now, you know, that's not the case. It's the flip. It's three out of four. It, it requires skilled laborers, um, much of which um, necessitates having post-secondary um, education. So I guess my long, <laughs> uh, you know, answer uh, to your question is that um, people would want to take stock of um again, what would be the cumulative disadvantage and disadvantages and effects of not prioritizing college attendance? Um, even in lieu of having to, to take out some loans, do you not feel that you're worth the investment potentially when we kind of see what the career arc or trajectory could be absent of having some formal education? Lurking behind a lot of this is, of course, the issue of equity. Um, and you've alluded to some of the issues uh, that are addressed by being open to community colleges as an institution that could help um, both our society and communities and also even four-year um, institutions. But could you talk a little bit more directly about issues of equity and how community colleges address that, how they don't address it, how uh, they, you know, the students in those situations might have challenges that we're not um, sensitive to at this point and how we could change that um, for the better? Right. And, and maybe if I can um, tag on to that, how do you think of equity? Like in, in your research and, in, you know, people um, might have some idea about this, um, but they might confuse notions of equity, for example, with notions of accessibility or justice. Yeah. And I know it's something you talk about very often. So before maybe um, expounding on Brent's question, kind of how do you think about equity? Okay. So now, so the thing about um, equity, uh, is that, as you alluded to, Peter, um, they conflate equity with other terms, right? And so um, we have often um, tried to tell folks, you know, let's do some level setting um, first, because when we do a lot of the workshops or, you know, provide technical assistance or what have you to the colleges, um, you know, we do these academies, we do idea labs, we do institutes, and many times people are coming into the space from the same institution, or if they're from different institutions, but again, all from the same sector, they have very different ideas about, you know, what diversity is, what it isn't, who it includes. And, you know, I think part of the tension is really needing to, again, do the level setting. And so we start from a place of of that, like, what is your understanding of, of equity? What does that mean in terms of educational equity? And what I've often had is people will also strip out and silo pieces, right? And so, for example, we're, we're often asked to, to help folks think about, um, you know, how to help them guide culturally responsive practices in terms of um, pedagogy and developing an equity-minded syllabus or thinking about equitable assessments or, you know, implicit bias, you know, a, a number of things. But what happens sometimes is there's pushback where folks will say, well, why are you bringing up race? Or race didn't come into the room until she raised it. <laughs> 
And so we go, mm, this is interesting. So that you would come to a, a equity assessment lab and you would think that we aren't going to talk about race. Well, we are committed to diversity. We want to ensure equity, but at the same time, they can't face race. But part of it's like the elephant in a room where we are being asked, can you help us, you know, relative to equity minded practices? Um, we have these um, achievement gaps or uh, equity gaps. Um, and so then the data that, you know, we're seeing is almost always, you know, here's black, here's white, here's Asian, here's, you know, Latinx, you know, um, and, and then sometimes where educators are, well, why can't those people be more like these people, you know, and it's a kind of blame shifting, uh, finger pointing, and, and sometimes um, very often um, a, a very defensive posture. Um, and so, you know, my thing is, so when you say equity, you know, what does that mean? How are you conflating that with diversity? How are you conflating that with inclusion? How are you inflating that with fairness, with justice, with racialization, with, you know, all these different things? And then if you're talking about equity mindedness, you know, um, Dr. Stella Ben-Simone, um, who's now Professor Emeritus um, from University of, of, of Southern California, um, Everybody else is catching up to where Stella was some decades ago when she talked about equity and that just wasn't part of the vernacular on the regular. Um, and when she came up with her concept around equity mindedness, part and parcel to being equity minded was also being racially conscious. And there's been ways in which that's been stripped out because when we'll get, you know, evaluations back where it's like, you all did not make us feel good. And I'm like, I'm sorry. But mm, sorry, not sorry. Kind of like a Demi Gavallo song. Sorry, not sorry. Um, we're not here to be a feel-good crew. Um, just right. come here to make you feel good, boo. Um, we came here <laughs> to have some some conversations, hard conversations, but necessary conversations. And and part of why we've been charged to come here is that your leadership wants us to work with you on issues pertaining to racial justice. And, and equity and, you know, sometimes it's around, you know, issues of climate. And so I think that there's been um, some unspoken dilemmas, uh, if you will, in terms of equity with community colleges. And I say unspoken because uh, so much of the focus when we see, you know, whether it's an article in Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Education or Diverse or what have you, Change Magazine, what is um, centered is four-year centric, right, in terms of what's happening on campuses related to DEI, um, what's happening on campuses related to climate. Um, and the thing is, is, you know, community colleges aren't divorced from that. Um, it's going on there too, and there's ways in which that has to be prioritized um, and problematized. Um, we have seen an uptick in race hate crimes every year uh, for the last four years, and you know, um, and even it was trending upward, but not where it was as stark of a spike um, as it has been um, 
in the last four years. So keep in mind, like between 2008 to 2012, there had been increases, but slight, much market, uh, more market uh, increases between 2012 to 2016. Well, it's been roughly about a 25% jump on average um, on campuses for hate crimes every year since 2016. When you disaggregate that data, and I crosswalk some of the data, uh, my colleague Jay Wood and I crosswalked some of the, the data from uh, the Department of Ed in terms of the campus reports of, of hate crimes um, with Anti-Defamation League data around hate speech, um, and, and also this a mapping where it's like, oh, okay, Mm-hmm. There's a pattern. There's a pattern here. And what's happening is why we see the upticks in terms of the FBI crime reports, we see the upticks from what the DOE is telling us is happening on campuses. And then when we disaggregate that data from the campuses, community colleges are no less, uh, they're not having any um, fewer problems, if you will, than their four-year ones, but you don't hear about it in the, it's not trending, it's not in the headlines in terms right. of, of what's happening. So we see that that's happening, right? That is happening at two and four year. Um, and that roughly two out of uh, every five hate crimes reported on a community college campus are racial hate crimes. There's still hostile hallways, you know, uh, across institutional type. There's still chilly campus climates. And so, you know, I think that you know, part of what we've tried to do in some of our work more recently too. Um, and for me, it was a, a critical point. We talked about um, sparks um, earlier or, um, you know, aha moments was watching the footage of the tiki torch carrying khaki pants wearing white supremacist take to um, UVA and Charlottesville. And so when I was watching that and I was going, wait a minute, what? Okay. Um, I started thinking about the need for activist leadership mm. and, and not just, you know, um, scholar activism, but also activist leadership. And what does that look like? And then how does that show up for community in community college spaces? So um, I shortly then after learned about AACNU, so which is the American Association for Colleges and Universities. They had, um, a, you know, what was going to be a, a launch of 10 uh, racial reconciliation centers. But only one of one of the campuses, only one campus out of the 10 selected was a community college. And I thought, Okay, again, nearly half of all undergrads are on two-year college campuses. We see that the current environment in terms of racial backlash has escalated and resistance around, you know, you know, culturally responsive pedagogies, resistance to, you know, calls for racial justice or what have you. Again, not divorced from or siloed and community colleges aren't exempt from that. So why is it that only one out of the 10, right? Um, and so Lumina Foundation was, was really wonderful um, as I was having some, some conversations about the need to, to do some 
decolonization, you know, and the strategic imperative on racial justice as a springboard from the work of ACPA, the American College Personnel Association. But to look at that within two year spaces, we didn't have money. And my thing is, even though we're soft money only shop, we couldn't be motivated by just like what's in your wallet. Because even if I was only coming up with Lent, this is the work I'm committed to doing. And so we did at Joliet, right? Our first, we thought that'd be symbolic to do it at the first institution. We did a drive-in on a strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonizing practices, but for community colleges. And it was well received and a program officer from Lumina just drove in. I didn't, you know, and was just there and checking us out and was like, so, you know, what support did you have for that? And it's like, what do you mean? What support? I, ca- I called in. Can you donate some space? Do you have some of this? Can you, you know, we're just going to make it happen. Like, this is so bootleg. He's like, oh, well, well, what would you do if you had a little money? I said, like, oh, let me tell you what we did. <laughs> and from that, we ended up where it was like a road show last year. We went to three different areas of the country and held racial justice institutes, but just for community college folks hmm. and on community college campuses. And we gave them tools and trainings around implicit bias, racial battle fatigue, um, you know, hmm. the utilities of intergroup dialogue to do race dialogues um, hmm. as a means of of improving learning environments on community college campuses and talk about what are some of the ways that we can be more um, active because, again, people tell us all the time that they're committed and they have the right rhetoric. And we make the statements. We saw a slew of statements come out post George Floyd's murder, but it's about beyond the statement. You know, it's the so what, now what? Um, Mm. And we were really trying to work with folks around how can you develop that action step? Like, what do you what do you do now? What are some of those opportunities? And so it's curious to me because this was work that was done, you know, during 2019. But it's clearly something that would resonate and is still needed in terms of race relations on community college campus campus settings, you know, in those settings as well. So so it sounds to me like if I can if I can kind of recap and sorry, I think I kind of Squeeze my question in there and squeezed out Brent's question, but I'm hurt. I'm hurt. But it sounds to me then like um, the way in which to think about equity is it's it, it can't be unbound from race, but it also is different across institutions as well as within them. Um, mm-hmm. And with that in mind, um, if you were to say like, "Hey, we need to," there also is that leveling. Uh, leveling off, like you say, like you have to have the conversation. I think that's an important component of this too. Definitionally, if you were going to try to explain to someone who isn't necessarily having these conversations, here's what equity is and mm-hmm. point blank definition, what would you give them? Right. So one of the ways that we kind of look at equity and frame it, Angela Welton, who uh, was our associate director, some of the work uh, that Welton did is a really good framing and part of what we have used in terms of just a baseline, right? As you said, an entryway. And that is equity being the process of achieving the ultimate goal of equality. Um, that, you know, it is part and it is part and parcel to, to getting there. And so when we think about it from an educational framing, it's really how do you provide your students with 
the, the, you know, again, varied, but additional and differentiated supports that are needed in order for them to achieve equality, right? And so institutions are, it's, it's a, this is really kind of very contextual, right? If you think about what might be an issue that's an equity matter or concern from one institution to the next, right? And I think the other thing is, um, you know, and what I kind of coupled with her work is for me, um, I frame equity consciousness, right? And so when we think about equity kind of as from an educational standpoint of how we have these very additional and differentiated supports um, to, to work with diverse learners and that we need equity in order to get to the ultimate goal of of having equality because we educate all kids. We just don't give all kids the same education, right? Is also to try to help folks to think about how can they become much more conscious, right? So equity consciousness is that awareness level. So it's not just that I'm aware, but it's also the awareness of equity and inequity and then being cognizant of how it shows up, how it manifests and is presented in your own behaviors in the behaviors of your unit or the institution and policies and practices across settings and organizations and outcomes. And so, you know, a a prime way of of kind of putting it back on yourself is, you know, so how mindful and and aware am I about unequal opportunities that exist for, for students and how so? And across, you know, which demographic? So that's one way. And, and also I think, to your point about kind of a, a entry definition of, of equity is again kind of also introducing folks to what is equity minded thinking, right? Because equity mindedness is that process, you know, of getting there and being aware. And equity consciousness is getting beyond the awareness and the knowledge of to a place of of disposition and action. So it's kind of like the theory and then the practice. Okay, it's having you. right rhetoric, but then right sizing your rhetoric to match the reality and to alter that reality to right size it. Right. Got it. Thank you. That, that was very helpful. So uh, can I bounce off that? So Ebony, there, there was a, um, you, you wrote a really um, profound piece a few years back, uh, started with the title Anti-Racist Change. And you, you were alluding in some respects to some of the strategies that you recommended to institutions um, in what you just discussed about equity, about how we, you, know, you can you can address the issue at the level of the individual, at the level of the school, at the level of the institution. And I, was, I just wanted you to uh, have the opportunity to build on that um, in relationship, for example, to the outbreaks we had this summer and the propensity for people to put out statements and um, which, you know, I don't want to criticize, but as, as you've indicated, that's not, you know, that's a start. That's not a, a finish by any means. And we can work on things individually, but you, you had a, you co-opted a wonderful phrase that the organizational change people use, which is continuous improvement cycle. Um, and I wanted you to get the opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, Take an institution like the University of Illinois. If you're going to implement an anti-racist change program or policy, how do you make that continuous um, and institutionalized in such a way that you know we don't just stop with a statement saying we support Black Lives Matter, but really do something on an ongoing basis that reminds us the, of these issues that you just raised? You know, I think some of it goes back to again that level setting um, where there's 
sometimes um, folks have a limited understanding or exposure and education to some of this in terms of the terminology, let alone kind of the realities of, of what's happening on the ground, where there's a conflation of terminology in, in many cases too. I think part of getting to a place of, of folks doing anti-racist work is also you got to just shed the unwillingness of surrender, <laughs> surrendering, if you will. Um, there has to be a way in which you want to unlearn yourself as well as to prompt others to unlearn, you know, racist beliefs and ideologies. There's also kind of in the way of being able to uh, engage in, in that kind of work is, you know, some people have, there's a, a real heightened perceived threat, almost like a, um, a fear of loss, loss in terms of familial relationships, right? Because I'm all about, well, just call a thing a thing. And that in your silence, there's complicity, but there's also comfort sometimes in, in being complicit. And for some people, they can't necessarily reconcile that if they were really to go there in terms of wanting to be a, a change agent, and having the kind of equity consciousness that, again, is, is not siloed from uh, racial justice as an imperative of a larger social justice orientation, that you might lose some relationships as a result of that, particularly if you're, you're challenging folks with regard to that. And so I think that if we kind of, you know, again, part, of, part and parcel to it is you have to focus on a system, right, in terms of it being systemic inequities in a system of um, racialization and system of, of white racial dominance privilege, then there's a piece around, you know, for this to be anti-racist work where you're emphasizing understanding. So as an institution, we're not just going to focus on systemic racialization and, 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 and white racial dominance. We're going to try to emphasize that folk need to understand how uh, white privilege works and, 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 you know, again, not, you know, exempt folks um, due to white fragility um, and then have a commitment to action. And so I think some of this is, um, I'll tell you a story. So right after, I don't want to say right after, but, you know, shortly after, you know, much of the unrest this summer, colleague, so former student said something about you know, we, we're dealing with so much with COVID. There's so much, you know, uh, that we have to do. And I get that there's all of this, you know, unrest and that people are bothered, that there are some people bothered um, by that. And we're going to get to that. It's just that we need to to do, you know, we, we have so much on our plate already with COVID. And I was kind of scratching my head with that one. Like, let's see, um, you say you got to address COVID. And um, you're going to get to that other stuff that people and people like people on the street talking about Black Lives Matter. You're going to get to that. You're going to address that. And I said, you know, I just need you to understand how that landed for me. What I heard was COVID is our is, is the main event and we will take a commercial break to address <laughs> racial unrest. Um <laughs> In the street. We don't want to interrupt the headliner. Going, <laughs> and then we're going to return to our regular scheduled program. <laughs> like, this is not an and or, right? This is, you know, or either or. This is an and both. It's not either or, it's an and both. You can address 
issues, I said, and in particular, you know, COVID-19 has lifted the, the veil and, and shows how much race doesn't mitigate, but exacerbates, right. you know, so much of what's happening. Um, and so you can, you can think, oh, well, I didn't, you know, I don't really know that that's how that landed. And I, and I know her and I know her work and I understand that that's not a place where she was coming from, or at least that's not her intent. But my, my thing and trying to also kind of poke at her was, look, intent doesn't exempt impact. So understand that, you know, there's ways in which you can still explicitly address racial inequities while you're also acknowledging and actively addressing what's happening with COVID. So I think some of the stuff that's ongoing in terms of what has to be done too on campuses, including ours, in relationship to, you know, kind of anti-racism work is, you know, more cross-racial socialization, more understanding that we have to center race and social justice initiatives, that we can't just strip it out and act like it's not attached to it. I remember when I was at, it was a reception and we had just, again, I was on the board for ACPA and had launched the strategic imperative on racial justice and a member of the organization said, you're on the board? And I said, well, yeah, what's this thing about, you know, uh, the strategic imperative on racial justice? I joined ACPA because it's about social justice educators. And if this is the direction, well, I don't know what that has to do with me. I, I don't I don't know how I contribute. And I said, I'm sorry. Like, so at what point is racial justice not a part of social justice? And if you say you care about social justice, you know, and then I said, you have a racialized reality, too. He was like, because he said, well, I'm white. I'm like, yeah, I see. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we all have racialized realities. And, you know, so I think that there were a lot of aha moments where people were, there were like white folks in that com- in that convention. There's roughly about 4,000 or so that attend this meeting every year that were, you know, a lot of people, not all of them, you know, there were, there were white folks that were going, hey, man, we've been waiting for you. You know, like you woke now, you know, we've been, because I, you know, let me get with you. And I'm like, yeah, get with them. You know, but, um, but, you know, so there were some that they're already there, right? And there are some where you got to meet folk where they are and they, they had never really explicitly addressed racial inequity, hadn't thought about it, um, felt uncomfortable talking about it. Um, and so, you know, in doing so, there's a way in which if we're going to do anti-racist work, we got to, you know, kind of, you know, be uncomfortable. Um, and because we can't do it and then also continue having color evasive, you know, practices and policies. Mm-hmm. I, I like that idea of um, you have to be okay with being uncomfortable um, because a lot of people, when they're having those kinds of conversations, their inclination is to, well, first of all, never have them to begin with. And second of all, to when they start to have them, they just kind of slide. Right? They, they just exit the conversation like that. But if you can have people construe it in a way that, oh, you know what? If you have this discomfort or you start feeling like, you know, you're not really sure how to navigate this conversation, that you could actually think of that as being a good thing that in some like small way progress is being made there. I like that's, I think it's a really cool message. Yeah. I mean, the, the cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, the extent to which I, I encourage all of us at some point 
to, to be in a place where we put ourselves in a position outside of our comfort zone. Mm. I mean, because you are certain to experience growth, right? It may not be fun. It may not be comfortable. But the thing is, is on the other side of it, you're the better for it, right? I mean, all of us, myself included, we have blind spots, right? You know, it's folks out here that's talking about like, you know, before woke was a thing, you know, they're like, I'm so woke. And it's like, yeah, but you're sleepwalking on this though. You know, so it's (laughs) like, you know, some of us have, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, you know, woke-ish. Uh, you know, relative stages, right? You know, uh, I'm still in realm on this, but you know, I'm wide awake on that. I don't think I've ever heard sleepwalking in that context (laughs) before. I I like that. I'm going to use that in the future. Oh yeah. Yeah. The so-called woke, but it's still sleepwalking. Yes. Steady, steadily pressing snooze, right? (laughs) Like, ah, and that's how I feel like some people, you know, like where, uh, I was telling a friend, you know, their, their team told them, that like they they just didn't want to deal with race that day and i was like oh that must be nice like i'm gonna call in for being black and because my black is tired um (laughs) and then you know like then we just catch up later right um you know because i was like what is that you know because we were we were lamenting um about you know it's a generational thing too where it's like you every generation wants their kids to to do better, you try to give them more, but at the same time, you know, you know, so my friend is like, these kids are like that show on ABC. I said, oh yeah, they blackish. I was like, yeah, I'm out here like blackity black. The kids are blackish, you know, you know, you're black AF. You know, we're just we're just cracking up, right? Um, you know, just like, oh my God, what is going on? But I get it that some of it is you you've been so protective because you don't want them to have to deal with some of the stuff that you've seen. You've, you know, like, like my kids, they, they, they're like, somebody called you the N word. I'm like, Oh, on more than one occasion. Yeah. Like, it's like, <gasps> you know, like, what is that? And it's like, you know, I hope you never have to experience it. Right. Um, you know, but we, we've had these kind of, I think the pandemic with everybody learning and, earning and working from home, as well as what we've been seeing, you know, from all of the the protests and the unrest of the summer, it has provided some really wonderful opportunities in terms of equity eye openers, if you will, for my own, um, where we've had to unpack. So what does it mean to be an ally? Um, do I want to be an ally? Do you get to decide that you're an ally? Who told you you could call yourself an ally? Um, to, you know, what does it look like to do advocacy work? Um, how do you differentiate? You know, so they're now just getting that vernacular as a result of some of this. Um, you know, and I'm telling them, you know, damn, being an ally, be an accomplice. And they're like, so you want us to like get locked up or like, I thought you didn't want us to catch a case, you know? So it's just, you know, it's really interesting, right? Having these conversations right now as they're, you know, coming into their own and and having their own awakenings, right? Um, So. Right. I'd like to kind of bring it back to uh, community colleges and see we've been uh, a little over an hour, so maybe a good time to um, kind of gear down a little bit. But I wanted to ask you um, kind of as a as a as a parting optimistic question, um, where do we go 
and how do we um, how do we go forward with community colleges here? Like, if you could do anything, and you could say that I know, right? Exciting. Uh, if you could do anything, kind of with community colleges, have them change in a certain way um, to fit or to be more helpful or successful, in, in kind of a pragmatic fashion. Um, what do you think we should do going forward? Well, um, I guess actually I will start with reframing because there's not. Um, I'm a critical friend of community colleges, and yes, I would uh, wholeheartedly agree that there's some things that can and should be done differently or better, but I also would put the onus on um, four-year institutions as partners, that the onus shouldn't just be on community colleges. Um, you know, Dimple Jan um, uh, at Cal uh, State, uh, she's doing some really interesting work around transfer receptive cultures. And one could, you know, arguably say, you know, over the years, most institutions like Illinois, they aren't particularly transfer receptive, right? Mm -hmm. And so whether it's the sending institution or the receiving institution, it really should be about working in concert with one another to um, to have what is a pipeline, um, you know, of, of policies, practices, and programs that um, can bolster um, student success um, and equitable student experiences and outcomes, right? And so I think some of the ways in which we can do that, again, goes back to the earlier conversation about uh, all of our institutions becoming more nimble in how we consider um, learning and learning being ubiquitous and um, learning can happen anywhere. We, this pandemic has taught us that, right? The quick pivot that you know most folks have had to do. Um, and so I think that there's ways also in which um, you know, additional articulation initiatives um, for an institution like ours to, you know, to prize ourselves on research. Um, and, and graduate education. Uh, I would love to see us have transfer pathways to graduate education mm -hmm. to plant those seeds and then begin that socialization where it's not about just a two plus two model, but try two plus two plus two, right? So that you're at the community college, you transfer with your associates, earn your baccalaureate, and then get into a first professional, get into a master's program, right? Um, there's ways where that can be for particular areas too, very um, well received in terms of industry needs. Um, and so I think, you know, we got to do some more out of the box thinking um, with respect to that. Um, but I am very much hardened by what will be uh, the, the transition to 2021. Um, this year has been ripe with a cluster of crises multitude of messes. Uh, we got leadership crisis. We got, you know, climate crisis. Uh, we got, you know, economic crisis, you know, with the decline of the economy and racial crisis and a global health crisis. Um, and so all the things, like everything and all the things and all at the same time. Um, and but so I'm hardened that uh, as we transition into 2021, um, that there is an administration that does not see the community college sector as Cinderella's, you know, uh, you know, uh, or Cinderella, right? We're not treated as the, the, the stepsister, right? 
Um, but they want to treat us like the, you know, the bell of the ball, so to speak, that there's ways in which um, they understand very much that there is currency um, and that community colleges can provide students with cultural and social and navigational capital. Um, but we have to also get to a point where we're investing more um, at a state and federal level in these institutions. Um, and so what I see coming forward in terms of some, you know, educational reform or some policy, um, you know, shifts, if you will, or agendas, I think that it's a right time of converging of problems, politics, problems within a policy window to get some things like, um, you know, what's on the radar, but might actually go somewhere is um, universal community college, right? Universal, um, you know, uh, free college, but with it being, you know, the two year, um, we, there's 17 states already doing it. Um, and so, you know, I think we can't talk about equity. We can't talk about access and not talk about affordability, right? Um, so all of that is, um, you know, connected and it's inextricably linked. And so um, I think that there's going to be a better environment <laughs> uh, across um, so many different areas of, of life um, coming just on the other side of, of January 2021. Yeah, I'm out here. What's that old Jesse Jackson slogan? Keep hoping live. I, I'm just Keep hoping live. Oh. <laughs> Lord, like recycle that. <laughs> This is this is flashback Friday. Let's bring it back. Let's get some I, hate to, I, I hate to date myself, but I saw him give that speech on the Sproul Plaza at Berkeley. <laughs> it's like, oh man, I'm old. <laughs> hey, it's, it's some stuff, you know, uh, it, it doesn't go out of style, or you know, it cycles back. It cycles back because I mean, you know, uh, my kids apparently are in the '80s clothes. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I, you, you please accept my condolences, having yeah, grown up then. I know. I was like, wait. 80s like i remember the pointer sisters i remember neon i mean what what are you doing like you could have picked a better decade anything but those leg warmers and and you know cut off tights and yeah please <laughs> yes really bad it's just i mean i hate i hate to cut this off because this has been great and i would like to hear you more so um but this is uh, fun. thank you well, thank you so much this has been wonderful so um, we really appreciate your time and uh we'll uh edit things from here and circle it back to you. Um, uh, Pete, do you have any other um, procedural issues that we need to attend to before we sign off? No, not at all. Uh, uh, Emily, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been a really helpful conversation. I hope this was uh, really great for all of our listeners as well. I'm sure it will have been. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Anytime.